Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... Our sense of a city is itself in some ways imaginary. I mean, if you think about the city you know best, you close your eyes and you try to imagine what you could draw of it. The idea that a city exists in the imaginations even of those who live in them and think they know them well or have lived their whole lives in them is an idea I find increasingly lovely. This week, our episode takes to the sky as we meet veteran British Airways long-haul pilot Mark Van Herniker. Mark has written a new book called Imagine a City, reflecting on his relationships with metropolises across the globe and how they've changed over the course of his nearly 20-year aviation career. So, what can we learn from observing our cities from above? This is The Urbanist. Welcome to this week's episode. Who amongst us hasn't been mesmerised by the view down below when flying? There's something magical about seeing cities from up above, both when seeing them for the first time and when you can recognise the geography around a place that you know well. Today we'll be hearing from long-haul pilot Mark Van Herniker, but before we get into it, I wanted to ask Monocle's Carlotta Bello to join me in the studio to set the scene. Carlotta, welcome to this side of the glass. Now, you interviewed Mark both for The Urbanist and Monocle magazine. So what can we expect in the next half hour or so? Speaking to Mark, he's so evocative in the words that he chose to describe, you know, all the trips that he has done. The book, Imagine a City, is quite anchored on his childhood and it keeps bringing us back to when he was a kid and was staring at a paper globe that was perched on his desk or making model aircraft. And now that's what he does for his career. So over the next 30 minutes, we can hear how, you know, having that vantage point from those fast forward windows is able to inform the view on cities. And we decided to pepper the episode with a few sound effects. And also we have our own colleague, Alexis Self, reading a few excerpts of the book here and there when it's quite relevant to introduce a few of the chapters. I always find it strange. Sometimes when I've been doing flights between Asia and back to Europe, you get on a plane and it's going to be a day flight, but people want to sleep because you know, you're taking off in the evening, the time zones are messing around with you. So people immediately pull down the shutters on the windows as soon as you take off. And yet you know if you open that shutter, you'll see yourself, I don't know, flying across Iran, for example. And I think, you know, I've never been to Iran. I'd like to go to Iran. Maybe I'll never get to go there in my life. And the notion that you're flying above the cities of Iran and nobody wants to have a look is just bizarre and disconnection with this marvel of flight and this incredible thing you get to see below you and it you do see the shape of these cities and where they sit often in the middle of barren land or you're coming over in the old days the far north of russia and you'd see these lost communities that you just knew nothing about it's a strange bird's eye view he gets and we get yes and he mentions in his interview as well how in certain routes the passengers actually almost get a better view because it follows you for longer on the side of the plane and we have this idea that the pilots have you know the best vantage point in the aircraft and for a lot of the time that is true but it was nice to hear that we also get some of the treats but it is so true there's I think if you have this kind of fascination about cities and urbanism and the landscape around us I found myself every now and then on certain routes knowing oh we should be crossing x place now i'm going to try to open the window just to peek at it because i know it probably will be the only time in my life that i will see that landscape uh, that happened a lot as well traveling through the united states when you're in you know in the middle of the us and 
flying particularly to the West Coast, to Los Angeles, and you know there's a vast desert and there's the Grand Canyon, and then you'll see Las Vegas at some point, and then nothing again until you reach the Pacific Coast. And that is so evocative as well of understanding the geography when you're traveling and just how beautiful it is. I think, you know, growing up for me as well, I'm from an island. We don't have ferry or boat connections to the mainland or anywhere else. So you have to love flying. And it comes this idea of discovery and everything else that's out there. Even just crossing the Atlantic is a beautiful childhood memory that is just seeing for two hours just a sea of blue. And then suddenly we're somewhere else. Well, Carlos, thank you for setting the scene, getting us on the runway, as it were. But now I think it's time to hear from the man himself. Here's Mark. I'm Mark Van Honecker. I'm a long-haul commercial airline pilot and the author of Skyfaring and a new book called Imagine a City. I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts, in New England, called Pittsfield. It's actually a city, but in modern terms, it barely qualifies as a city in terms of population. It has, when I was growing up, it had about 50,000 people in it. And growing up there, I was very, very drawn to the idea of cities, both the idea and the reality. Boston was, you know, two and a half hours away, and New York was maybe three and a half hours. They've loomed very large in my imagination, both because they seemed like these sort of magical distant places that all the big roads led to, and my parents had met in Boston. So cities had this kind of very important quality to me growing up. And then beyond Boston and New York, I was really drawn to maps and my globe and my room and the idea of turning it to cities. And really, I was very drawn even to their names because of course, when you're spinning a globe, a name is almost all you have of a city. And so that sense of growing up in a small city and looking to the wider world was a big part of my childhood. And, you know, like a lot of gay kids growing up, I looked to going to another place and to my own future. And cities seemed, I'm not the only one who thinks of cities as being an obvious destination for larger cities. When you look ahead both to different places and to a future that might be more comfortable than you than you felt at the time. <laughs> Aviation was, it doesn't look separate now, but I guess when I was growing up, it didn't feel very separate either. I was really, really obsessed with airplanes and aviation and flying and, you know, both the mechanics of flying and, and actual airplanes themselves, but also, of course, what they make possible in terms of journeying and of going to new places. In a way, those passions for flying in cities were combined by airline route maps, you know, in the back of, of a magazine. And you would see these, you know, these two names that were connected by this curving perfect line. And, and you think, you know, each of those places is impossibly complicated and intricate and has its own history and many thousands or millions of people who live there and who live there now. And yet they were connected in this deceptively simple way by, by airplanes. So those two things were, were two passions of mine. And my father, he was born in Belgium and then lived in what was then the Belgian Congo and then in Brazil for many years. You know, aviation had kind of made that life possible. And my mother had lived in Paris for several years. And when she traveled to Paris from the U.S., she took a, a ship. But when she came back, uh, she flew. And that was her first flight. And so that sense of cities being connected by these majestic machines was certainly compelling. And I couldn't really separate those two passions if I tried, I think. I don't remember my first flight as a passenger, I think because we had family in Belgium, we went back a few times when I was quite young and I don't remember those. I do remember the first time I flew on my own as a passenger. I was going to visit family in Belgium for the summer 
when I flew by myself. And that was just an incredibly memorable experience. And I actually, it was the first time I had a Walkman. Um, so I kind of sat in the window seat and listened to music all through the night across the Atlantic. And then my first flight as an airline pilot, I remember very clearly that was from London, Glasgow. That was on an Airbus aircraft, but more memorable for sure was my first flight as a long haul pilot on a 747. And that was from London to Hong Kong in 2007 in December. And, you know, by that I'd been flying all over Europe for four or five years, but there was something about the scale of that journey and the scale of that aircraft that I won't forget anytime soon. I couldn't believe it. I mean, what can you say? It's, it was a dreams don't often come quite so literally true, but that was one example of it. I mean, I, I was very aware of what the sort of 14 year old kid in me would have thought. In the cockpit now, on the dark night of my first trip to Liverpool and under my instructor's thundercloud gaze, I follow a connect-the-dots sequence of radials towards the city, as if they were long, nearly invisible wires running from one navigation beacon to the next, through the murk of this English night. Soon we're on our final approach, extending the flaps and landing gear for a westerly landing at the airport that was recently renamed after John Lennon, and whose interior features a statue of Lennon and a plaque with lyrics, Above Us Only Sky, from his song Imagine but I won't have time to find those words tonight, nor to see the spot by the terminal where a yellow submarine will someday be parked, or anything else of the city, aside from a tilting star field of amber lights when at last we break through the lowest lying cloud. This one's a touch and go, my instructor reminds me as we emerge. I guide the small twin-engine propeller plane onto the airport's sole runway. Before there's time to begin to slow down, I open the throttles. The engines roar and the plane lurches as the propellers bite the air anew. I pull the control column back. The streaming runway lights fall away. I raise the landing gear and as we climb into the mist, the world again goes dark. In Imagine a City, I talk about the view of cities from above and, you know, especially at night. And one of the reasons I like flying in winter more than in summer is that you have more of the flight takes place at night when the nights are longer and you, you see so many more cities at night. And we have this view of when we look down on a glowing city where it has, it kind of combines this almost technical majesty of the structure of it. And you can kind of see that they've grown in a way which is partially planned depending on the city and, and partially not planned. And yet it has some kind of intelligence to it and very much in the way that a biological organism might. And of course, that's not just an analogy. I mean, we are rooted in our own biology and we can look down on a city and think of it as in some ways a biological creation. And yet that sight of a city at night has this incredible coziness to it as well, especially if as a long haul pilot, we're often flying overnight. And so you look down on cities where you can imagine at least that most people are sleeping and having quiet nights and quiet homes. And that's a, a lovely perspective. Of course, that perspective from above has its limitations. You know, the cities aren't actually silent places. It's <laughs> certainly not nearly as silent as they are from above. You know, and the wholeness that they seem to have from above, that sort of perfect wholeness is also has its limitations. Cities are not, do not have that perspective from the ground. They have many inequalities in them that can't be perceived from above, many problems. And so that perspective does have its limitations, but it also has its beauty. In many ways, it's most interesting for me to fly over a place that I know well or that I've lived in. I lived in Boston for several years before I became a pilot, and I fly to Boston often, but often when I fly 
over Boston on route. If I'm flying from Washington to London, for example, we might fly right over Boston. And that sense of looking down on a city that you know well, it's a very curious and wonderful feeling. I mean, you're kind of looking down, especially if you don't live there anymore, you're looking down on your own past in a way. You're looking down and thinking about your years in this place or that place. And, and of course, you're also looking down on the present for millions of people and a place that will be a future place for, for millions of others. And then there are places that I fly over where I feel kind of drawn to them, even though I've never been there. So my mother's family was from Lithuania around the city of Kaunas. And often when I would fly from London to Beijing, we would fly over it. And, you know, my mother wasn't born there. Her grandparents were. And I've never been there. And my parents aren't around anymore. Yet when I fly over it, I look down and think, well, in those lights, there are clearly people who are relatives of mine. And then a few minutes later, those lights have passed beyond the window and we're on to somewhere else. About flying into cities, it is a very unique perspective from the flight deck to have those vast forward windows. It's really an extraordinary view. And, you know, we approach them both horizontally and vertically. You know, we're descending as we get closer. So we can kind of see what gives way to a city. You know, cities are steered by their locations and lives are steered by, by geography, by the rivers they lie on, by the harbors they lie on, by the intersections of rivers or of railway lines that were built before the city was. That's a very common pattern in North America, for example. You know, you can look ahead and see, well, this valley is going to meet the sea. And, and then you think, oh, well, that, and that's where our destination is in a very obvious and lovely way. You can get a sense of that from the passenger cabin as well, but it's obviously more dramatic when you can look ahead. I'm trying to think if there's a city that I saw first from the air and then was then drawn to go to. Salt Lake City is a city that I've seen often from the air on en route from London to Los Angeles or Phoenix. And it has an extremely striking location. It's ringed by mountains all around from the east, and then it gives way to this kind of desert. And when I first went there as a traveler, I was much more excited about going there because I had this already had the sense of it from above. There's another category of cities, which are cities that I've only flown to the airport. So I have actually landed at them and flown away without ever entering the city. And the most obvious example of that is Athens, actually. So I've flown to Athens a bunch of times, but I've never left the airport. I've never even left the aircraft occasionally, except just to walk around to inspect it before we fly back. And that sense of, you know, one of the most illustrious cities of history being this place that I've actually seen from the air. And you do get quite a unique perspective on it. And yet to have never walked in it is a striking experience. What it's like to actually go to cities and stay in them as a long haul pilot does. It is a very unique way to experience them. I think I say at the start of Imagine a City that I think long haul pilots today have a sense of cities that no one else in history has ever had, not only because of aviation's role in the world, but because the world is urbanizing so quickly. The most obvious quality of that perspective, I think, is that we go to cities frequently that we never really go and think, oh, this is my only trip here. Whereas if you go somewhere as a traveler, you might think, oh, well, I've only got five days here or a week here. And when you come back from a museum and you just have a sit down on the bed because you're tired and you think we don't go out and do something this afternoon, then, you know, we've wasted three hours here or something. You know, that, that kind of pressure that you feel maybe as a tourist to make the most of your time or as business travelers, when you go to a city and maybe don't have time to do anything for fun. Whereas for us, you know, we always know we're going to be back. And so our only responsibility in the city is to rest and then to do what we like with our free time. And, and so that sense that we can do kind of ordinary things or have kind of routines like a cafe we go to or a park we always go to and to not feel the pressure of the possibility that this is our only experience there is, is a really lovely way 
When I flew the Airbus around Europe, I did that for five years and then I knew I was leaving for the 747 and suddenly there were all these European cities where I had never done the most obvious thing because I thought I had all the time in the world to do it. So, you know, I probably flew to Milan 30 times, but I'd never been to La Scala and I thought, oh my God, I don't know when I'm going to come back here. I have to get tickets. So, you know, one night my colleagues and I went or in Vienna, I'd been to Vienna I don't know, again, 20, 30, 50 times. And I, I had never explored the Hofburg Palace. I'd never gone to its museums. And suddenly I thought, oh my God, I have, well, I have to see the Spanish writing school, you know, which are the things you might do on your first day there if you were an ordinary tourist. But it's easy to set those aside when you think you have all the time in the world. Throughout Japan, whenever the doors of a train open, what's known as a Hasha Merodi, departure melody, may start to play. It's a railway version of musical chairs. When the music stops, it means the doors are about to close. The idea is to urge commuters onwards without stressing them unduly. Most Yamanote line stations have their own tune, or two, as many stations have separate melodies for clockwise and anti-clockwise trains, which may derive from a popular song or refer to the musical heritage of the neighbourhood around each station, or to cultural figures such as manga characters. The melodies have such cosmopolitan names as Cielo Astreado, Starry Sky in Spanish, Dance On in English, and Haru, Spring. While the one that begins to play as the doors open here in Shinjuku, encouraging me off the train at last and others onto it, is known by the English name Twilight. My general perspective is to try to do, if I'm in a city for a few days, I try to do the things that I always like doing, and then maybe try to do one new thing. You know, in Tokyo, I always like to take a ride on the Yamanote line, which goes around the center of the city and which forms most of it, the last chapter in the book. And then I might go, there's a cafe in the Nezu Museum, which I really like, but then I might try to do something different on another day. It's easy to not do the new thing, but sometimes you... It almost always pays off. I mean, you never really regret being a little adventurous. I was in Doha maybe two years ago, and I had seen something somewhere about the new uh, National Library. And I thought, oh, do I want to go there? And I thought, well, yeah, I might as well go. And it's one of the most beautiful libraries I've ever seen. It's like an airport for books, if you were looking at photos for it. In fact, that actually became a chapter in the book, which I had to cut for length. And in fact, writing the book was, you know, a chance to be a little more adventurous as well. Very soon after I finished Skyfaring, I had the sense that the next book would involve cities. It seems like if flying was my first passion, cities would be the obvious next one. The role in the book of my hometown and the kind of memoir or more personal elements, that was kind of unexpected for me. I didn't expect it to be such a personal book, but then I found out that I couldn't really write about what cities meant to me without talking about what they meant to me when I was young and what my hometown still means to me. The book is kind of framed around these short passages about my childhood and my hometown, and then these much longer ones about the cities of the world that I've come to know as a pilot. And there's, whenever I go to a new city and I'm trying to figure out which way is east or west, I'm always referencing the view from my childhood bedroom, which looked directly east. And very, very, this, maybe it's a pilot's awareness of the directions of things in my hometown. You know, what is west of what and what is north of that house and east and and I feel like I'm always putting that map onto the cities I'm, I'm walking through as a pilot. And so I really wanted to capture both the sense of how we always carry our childhood places with us wherever we go and how a pilot's life is 
instructive in the sense that we see so many other cities that the fact that our home one is still with us says something lovely about the places we come from and how they're always with us. In terms of choosing the cities for the book, it was really tough. <laughs> there were so many options and the chapters are organized around themes such as rivers, so cities and rivers, or the color blue, which focuses mostly on Cape Town. And even those categories were kind of essentially infinite. I, I really wanted to do one on cities and mountains. I was going to write about Santiago in Chile and Vancouver, for example. There just wasn't room in the end. There was a whole chapter on, on libraries and cities, and the library in Doha was there. The, the public library in Boston was there. So it's tough, but if anything, it speaks to the diversity of the urban world and to the sort of endlessness of our possible explorations of it. So it's an optimistic problem. <laughs> the idea of cities and mountains was many of the world's most beloved cities for travelers combine uh, mountains and, and water. So if you think of Rio, Cape Town, Vancouver, Los Angeles, they combine those dimensions. And Santiago in Chile is very dramatically ringed by mountains that's not on the coast, but mountains are, are everywhere when you're in it. I really wanted to capture the way in which cities lie within their landscapes and mountains make that point very well. <laughs> but in the end, there wasn't room for that. Lisbon is a great landing. It's just an extraordinary place to fly into, especially if you're seated on the right side. And, you know, normally coming from London, you go south and you cross over the river and then turn around back to the north and you, you have that bridge, which will remind Americans of San Francisco. Yeah, it's a lovely landing. I never flew to the old Hong Kong airport as a pilot, but I did go there once as a passenger and it was an extraordinary experience. LaGuardia actually in New York, often you come in from the south directly over Manhattan and then take a turn to the east for the landing there. And that sense of the streets of Manhattan kind of flipping past like pages because they're all parallel is really, really lovely. I mean, I think Heathrow is such a lovely example when you're landing um, from the east and flying west along the Thames. And we're all quite used to it. But if you think about someone who's coming to London for the first time, they look down and they see St. Paul's and the Houses of Parliament and the river and the eye and the parks, that whole chain of royal parks running off to the west. It's something to not get used to, I think. When I was researching Imagine a City, I looked at a list of the world's largest cities. I, I found a list that was published by the UN. It was the world's 550 or so largest cities. And more than 120 of them were in China. And I counted the Chinese cities I've been to. I'd only been to four. So I feel like the predominantly non-Western nature of urbanization is something that demands a humble approach from people who are based in a, even a very large Western city. You know, one of the things that was cut from the book, when I lived in Boston, there had been a highway built right through the center of Boston that destroyed a whole bunch of neighborhoods. And there was a massive project when I lived there to put that highway underground, it was called the Big Dig, and to try to restore the neighborhoods above that had been damaged by the construction of that highway. The highway was a monstrosity. It was kind of decaying and crowded. But I saw a video of what, I guess in the 50s, they had looked ahead to when they built that highway and they showed, it was like the show, The Jetsons. That's what it looked like. It showed this glowing highway going through the city with these little dots moving along. And, it, you know, it looked like the future and the future didn't work out the way that they planned it. At other times, my previous job, I was often in Paris for work, and we stayed on um, Boulevard Haussmann. And it was very interesting to understand that Paris had also been largely replanned with a vision of the future. And so I had a whole chapter in the book about Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses. So the future of cities, it won't be what we planned. <laughs> when I was a kid, 
and I imagined my city. I never considered how it might smell. I never thought about the winds that might reach it in one season or the next. Winds that might have been first named and mythologized thousands of years previously, and that more recently had been harnessed by the city's mills and ships, and that still ease or slow the migrations of the birds that touch down on the lakes and the city's parks, and on the restored canals that recall a former age of its industry. Not once did I consider all the breaths that would be taken, or the millions of chests that must rise and fall at every moment of the lives that formed the metropolis. The problem, when you only imagine a place, and especially when you do so alone, is that there's no one to point out such obvious omissions. There are no helpful friends or stern inspectors to tap you on the shoulder and warn you. Your city has no air. I think a lot of kids have imaginary places or imaginary entities as kids. And for me, it took the form of, of a city. When I grew up and started traveling, I realized that the real cities were far more interesting than anything I ever imagined. I couldn't have begun to imagine, you know, the reality of our urban world. And I would say that there's one thing that I have come to appreciate more as an adult is that our sense of a city is itself in some ways imaginary. I mean, if you think about the city, you know best. And you close your eyes and you try to imagine what you could draw of it. And you think of how, okay, well, there's this street that I walk along every day. I could draw that really well. I could tell you what comes on this corner and then on the next corner. And then you try to move a block or a street away from that. The way that that fades out and yet will then eventually intersect with some other part of the city you know. The idea that a city exists in the imaginations even of those who live in them and think they know them well or have lived their whole lives in them is an idea I find increasingly lovely. and is something I really wanted to capture in the book. I really love flying into Los Angeles, especially the last hour and a half of the flight. You have the sense of these vast, vast deserts, and then this ring of mountains, which are often snow-capped, and then beyond them, you have this bowl of light, which is lying on the edge of the Pacific. It's an extremely dramatic approach. I really recommend, if you're flying to Los Angeles, that you get a seat, especially on the right side of the aircraft. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode of The Urbanist. Mark Van Hoenacker's book, Imagine a City, is out now. And be sure to pick up a copy of the latest July-August issue of Monocle magazine too. It not only includes an interview with Mark, but also our annual quality of life survey, where we rank the top 25 cities around the world to call home. You can find us in all good news agents, or of course, by becoming a subscriber at monocle.com. Today's episode of The Urbanist was produced and edited by Carla Trebello and David Stevens. And to play you out this week, well, here's Kanye West with Touch the Sky. Thank you for listening, city lovers. I gotta testify, come up in the spot looking extra fly. For the day I die, I'ma touch the sky. Gotta testify, come up in the spot looking extra fly. For the day I die, I'ma touch the sky. When they thought pink polos are hurt to rock.